This forum is part of City Club's Education Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson Corporation and PNC Bank. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here and proud member. It's Tuesday, September 14th, primary election day here in Cleveland, and we are joined by Pete Van Leer, co-chair of the City Club Education Committee and senior researcher at Policy Matters Ohio. He will introduce today's esteemed guests. Pete. Thanks, Cynthia. Good afternoon. I'm pleased to introduce today's virtual forum, part of our Education Innovation Series and Honest Education, talking about race, equity, and inclusion in the classroom. Conversations about race, equity, and inclusion are not new to K-12 classrooms. We all remember studying MLK's I Have a Dream speech, or taking a moment to reflect on the works by the great poet Maya Angelou. These discussions and more have been necessary components in lessons on history, literature, and art for decades. Yet, almost overnight, a wave of outrage over critical race theory, or CRT, has taken hold. On August 20th, the City Club welcomed Dr. Hassan Kwame, Jeffries to our podium to clear the air on what CRT is and is not. The conclusion, while critical race theory is not being taught in elementary and high schools in this country, in order to understand U.S. history, you do have to understand race and racism. Now, the Ohio State Legislature has introduced two bills that ban divisive concepts, a very broad definition that leaves much to interpretation and may put many routine classroom conversations in jeopardy. It's modeled after similar legislation in other states, like Texas. And just last month, accusations of promoting CRT and divisive concepts led to the firing of the principal at a Texas high school, the school's first ever black leader, despite support for him from students who protested in his defense. So what will be at stake if these conversations are prohibited in schools? And aside from legislation at the state level, how is this playing out at local public schools? And why are honest conversations about race, equity, and inclusion important in K-12 education? Joining us here today to discuss these questions are John Adams, uh, Department Chair for History, Cleveland School of Science and Medicine at John Hay High School, Melissa Cropper, President, Ohio Federation of Teachers, Owen Gaynor, student at Rocky River High School, Sarah Rintamaki, parent at Westlake City Schools. Today's forum will be moderated by Dr. Ronnie A. Dunn. He's the Interim Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Professor at Cleveland State University. So esteemed panelists and Dr. Dunn, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. And on behalf of our distinguished panelists and I, it's truly an honor to participate in this critically important discussion. I'm sure we're in for a robust dialogue, so why don't we dive right in? Westlake and Rocky River are two predominantly white homogenous suburbs with populations greater than 90% white. How diverse are these school districts? Sarah, as the parent of two sons in high school in Westlake, I'd like to come to you first for a response. We're not diverse. Um, you know, Dr. Dunn, you could really see um, how few Black American students and families we have in Westlake when Westlake played Warrensville Heights in football. And one side of the stands, it was all white families. And the other side of the stands, it was all Black families. And these segregated suburbs didn't happen by chance. They happened because of our history. You know, my grandparents bought a home in Fairview Park and black families were not allowed to buy homes in Fairview Park. Mm -hmm. And their wealth that they created sent my father to college and in turn sent me to graduate school. And I want my children to be able to go in to their history classes and learn from their teachers and talk about the fact that the segregated suburbs they saw last Friday night at the football game were the result of our history and the policies that we had. Those are the conversations they should have. Yes, yes, thank you for that, Sarah. So how is this discussion of the teaching of race and the history of racism in America and its contemporary manifestations being received in these respective communities? Uh, Owen, as a junior in Rocky River High, 
What is your perspective on this matter and how is it being viewed by your fellow classmates in your school? Uh, well, I'll start with my own perspective on the issue. Um, I feel like these uh, conversations about race, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion are of the utmost importance for, I feel like, giving us context to past historical events and current events for that matter as well. Uh, they allow us to think critically of our surroundings and then be able to craft our own opinions. Um, regarding the student body as a whole, I would say all of us are willing to learn and talk about these things if they're getting talked about. Um, and that's the issue in Rocky River, at least. I can't speak for other schools, but here at least uh, there is a culture of apathy towards uh, nearly every issue that comes up. Um, and honestly, no one is talking about it or is even aware of it. Uh, for example, our history teachers are still teaching all of these things and talking about uh, race. Um, and the students are listening to that, but these bills are not getting discussed at all. So the students don't know that it's an issue. Or if they do, it's the, um, oh, that's happening at the state house. How could it possibly affect our small school district? Uh, but there's a failure to understand the ramifications of these bills, at least. I see, I see. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Melissa, what is the Ohio Teachers Federation's position on this matter? We, we are definitely opposed to both House Bill 322 and 327. We, we think that these will have a very detrimental impact on our classrooms. And in fact, they are the very opposite of, of what we advocate for as teachers. You know, as, as teachers and paraprofessionals and support staff, our goals are to empower students with the truth so that they can impact change for the future. Mm -hmm. And these bills would prevent that from happening and would limit what we're able to say and do in our classrooms. So for those reasons, we are opposed to these bills and are actively advocating against these bills and at the same time encouraging and supporting our teachers in teaching an honest, accurate history and in not shying away from having these critical conversations in their classrooms. Yes. And to follow up, how are teachers handling this in the classroom? And do you have any specific examples of students or their parents challenging teachers on curriculum being presented in the classroom? We, we have uh, seen a few challenges happen um, within the past year within our ranks of First of all, I refer to Rocky River, which is not a district that we represent, but we did see last year in, in Rocky River during the election season that critical race theory was used as uh, as a wedge issue. When a robocall went out the day before an election on a levy, citing critical race theory as a reason to not support the school levy, which eventually uh, was defeated. In our Beachwood School District, which we do represent, in March we had, uh, I believe, two different school board meetings where, where parents came to the school board me meeting raising issues about so-called critical race theory being taught in the classroom. But if you would go back and, and listen to recordings of, of those of the school board meetings and what these people were saying, uh, what they were accusing the school of, one, was not critical race theory, and two, was not things that were even happening in our classrooms, or even things that teachers would ever do. Uh, it, it was just relying upon extremist talking points to create fear and division within the school district. And that's what we see happening over and over again. And that's what we have to keep in mind. These are extremist attacks on public education. They're not based or grounded in truth about what is actually happening, mm -hmm. um, but it's rather another attempt to, to, um, to try to divide us and to tr try to create distrust in our public school system. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and I think that point uh, merits reiterating, this is a distortion of uh, critical race theory, which is actually an analytical approach used by scholars, particularly in legal studies. So uh, thank you for, for making that point. 
John, while Cleveland Metropolitan School District is a majority uh, student of color school district, and that John Hay is a magnet school that draws students from throughout the county, what are the demographics at your school and how is this debate over the examination of race and history in America and its legacy and the contemporary manifestations, many of which we were so conspicuously illuminated and exacerbated uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. How is this being felt at your school and within the school district? Um, I would say uh, to start, um, our demographics um, of our school, we are about um, roughly 77% African-American, about 11% um, white, 1.5% um, Asian, and about 6.6% .6 Hispanic. We've got a mixture of, of English language learners and um, students who identify as multicultural at our school. Um, to answer the question over how this kind of current history post george floyd brianna taylor um the black lives matter movement um is being felt by students in the era of COVID 19. um i from what i've seen from students i think that i've seen a a real curiosity um and a desire to try to make sense of the world that they're living in and the world that may be handed over to them. And so I just think there's there's uh, students out here who are trying to understand um, the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you talk about the distortion of critical race theory that is occurring, you know, currently by, you know, you know, opponents, um, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's doing a disservice because you know, we have a diversity of students here at John Hay because we are a magnet school and the students want to know. And the truth is becoming politicized during a pandemic. And so I think that what's happening in the pandemic is that students uh, maybe in ways that they wouldn't normally because they're young and they're teenagers, they're grappling with the issue of mortality. Yeah. Um, and I think that when a young person, teenagers have to grapple with the idea of their own mortality, I think um, what's real to them and what's important to them changes and it produces questions. So I feel like what is happening now is I'm speaking from an urban school district perspective, but I would, um, maybe Sarah could speak on this a little bit more, but I would assume that urban students in urban school districts are not the only students who are mm -hmm. coming to school or going home with questions. And so that's where a lot of this anxiety or aggression may be coming from. Right, well, thank you. So uh, why don't we uh, go to Sarah and then I'd like to get uh, Melissa's thoughts on this as well. Uh, Sarah, what are the implications for uh, white children uh, and suburban, as well as rural school districts, given the changing demographic composition of the U.S. population? Uh, if we could unmute, Sarah. Oh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> not my first time. Um, I can't even imagine how my white children would be able to do well in a multicultural environment, workforce, college, if they um, don't have the opportunity to talk about race or gender or class differences or these divisive concepts um, in an academic setting while they're in a public education. Right. I mean, the whole point of the public education is to teach them how to listen to different perspectives analyze the information and form their own thoughts. And if they're not allowed to learn about any of these things or discuss in the classroom pro and for abortion or gun control or police reforms, if we you know, handcuff these teachers so that they can't use these current events as something that the kids can learn from, my kids are gonna be unprepared when they go into a setting where they're meeting urban kids that are learning about um, police reform and the need for that. Mm -hmm. um, okay. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's go to Owen. Owen, how do you feel that this will prepare you uh, or, or limit your preparation to compete in the diverse information technology-based uh, global economy of the 21st century? should this, these uh, policies or legislation pass? If this legislation were to pass, I would be grossly unprepared for uh, the workforce later. Um, learning about these issues, like I said before, adds context to everything that's happening and honestly just produces more thoughtful, uh, more articulate students. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if our education with those issues were limited, we would meet people outside of our own school districts and not be able to have productive conversation with them. And that honestly would just throw a wrench in the engine of uh, our society. Um, yes, uh, just the context is the most important thing I'm trying to get across right now. Just, yes. it adds so much to conversation. Yes, okay. Uh, Melissa, coming back to you. So you touched on this a little in your earlier comments, but if you could expound a little more on the implication and uh, potential ramifications for education if these bills pending in the legislature were enacted or passed. Uh, yes. Yeah, so first, I want to build a little bit upon the top of the issue you just raised as far as um, students because we also represent districts in rural areas too. And this has been a huge concern in our rural areas where not only is there not diversity in the classroom, but students also don't see diversity within their communities. And we've given out grant money in the past to our classrooms. We've had an overwhelming request for books in the classroom that teach diversity and create some exposure to diversity. Because again, our hope for the future is in our children. And if we're ever gonna create any change in this country, our children need to know the, the truth about what our history is founded on, what the problems are that exist in our communities and how we work together to change those problems. If these bills go into effect, it's gonna have multiple implications. One is gonna keep our students from hearing that honest truth, that honest education. Uh, but two, it's going to impact who actually decides to go into education as a teacher and who decides to be an administrator, who decides to be on a school board. And quite honestly, I I'm concerned about that already. Just the chilling impact of these bills being introduced and the, and the impact of the protests that are happening outside our State Board of Education and happening at local school boards are already causing some self-censoring in the classroom and are already causing, I think, people to rethink whether they want to be on a school board. Mm. And I think this is the long-term implication uh, of, this, of these kind of bills, whether they're passed or not. It's what kind of impact does it have on the people who are, who are sitting in these local positions? And who is it going to attract to sit in these positions? And I fear that, that people are going to shy away from the controversy and we're gonna end up having people who are extreme extremists who are making these decisions at a local level. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I spoke at a class last night and one of the gentlemen uh, was from a Eastern suburb and he's running for a position on the school board because of these efforts to uh, ban uh, the, the uh, full and inclusive uh, discussion and telling of our history and race in the classroom. And um, it, he said there are eight people running for, I think, four slots on their school board. So um, that is, is, is a, a, a very real and persistent problem. Um, Sarah, what would you say are the ramifications for representative multicultural democracy, given these, uh, this attack, this, this campaign to uh, erode our educational system? Well, I I'm really worried about our democracy. You know, we keep going into these echo chambers where, you know, um, you know, conservatives are only listening to extreme conservatives and liberals are only listening to extreme liberal thoughts. You know, when I was in high school, 
you know, we were forced to listen to the arguments of conservatives and liberals and debate them. And my kids today, because these laws aren't passed, are doing the same things. You know, I love it when they come home and they say, but I liked this part of this argument and I liked this part of the argument on the other side. And that's how our democracy works best. If we allow the conservatives in power right now to limit the debate, well, and then vice versa. So then when the liberals come to power, they're going to limit the debate either. Like that just shouldn't be part right. of what we're talking about in our schools. We're mm -hmm. teaching our kids to analyze. That's what makes a democracy great is to listen to different perspectives, analyze it and come up with your own conclusion. Mm -hmm. John, would you like to respond to that question? What are the ramifications as you see it uh, for a representative multicultural democracy? I mean, I try not to mince words, but I I feel Sarah's, you know, her trepidation and her concern because I feel as if we have evolved from a society. And, it's, you know, I always tell my students, it's so weird when you get older and then you actually have time to look backwards on. And I'm at this point in my life where I'm like, I remember when it was a different age. And I guess I now have a new appreciation for the Republicans from like the 1990s and maybe the early 2000s that I didn't have before <laughs> because there really was a point where there were two different sets of ideas. Right. Like I mean, whether you agree with one side or not, or you, you lean towards one side or the other, there really were two different sets of conservative ideas and a vision for the conservatives have for America. And then like a more democratic, um, you know, liberal vision for what the country could become. But even as a person, you know, I have my own political bent. I feel like I am forced into one political position mm -hmm. because there's such imbalance in our political system now that literally one side is just making up stuff in line. <laughs> and so to me, it's like when I think about how it feels to be in that position, you know, even as a person who likes dialogue, I don't know how to have a dialogue where I, when I feel like we can't agree on facts. Yes. And so I feel like the implications right now, if we just be quite like direct and, and literal, I feel like we we're evolving from two valid sets of disagreeing um, camps or ideas or political affiliations into literally the validation of fascism. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem that we're having in the society because a lot of us feel as if we are still living in this kind of conservative liberal um, world that we kind of had been living in for a long time. But I think it's important that we label fascism what it is yes because we're, we're we're dressing it up and so it's really difficult i think for people to truly understand what's happening if we don't name things properly but i don't really feel like we have two political parties right now i feel like we have one party trying to govern and one that literally has that wants power and that um is going to ignore facts and you know, so I don't know. I feel like the implications are definitely what Sarah said. Um, but I think there's a real danger in mislabeling things, which is what we're pretending like the conservative movement is what the conservative movement was 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's not anymore. Mm -hmm. John, I'm going to stay with you quickly here. As a history uh, professor or teacher, uh, ed educator, would you... Is there any historical period or uh, time that you would compare this to this, this movement, this uh, contentious cultural uh, war or campaign that you see that we're in the midst of? Is there anything historically that parallels that from your perspective? I think there are several moments. I think a moment is Bacon's Rebellion right, where you have this rare moment in early colonial American history where you literally have an interracial coalition, a class-based coalition as well, where you have, a, you know, these groups of poor whites and, you know, blacks 
and they are working together to, um, you know, to basically fight the elites in Virginia. I think Reconstruction is probably the best example. Mm-hmm. Because what I feel like we look at Reconstruction and we look at it in a literal sense that this was the aftermath of the ending of slavery. What I think what Reconstruction was really about, it was about um, Black empowerment, Black inclusion, Black citizenship, and how uh, you know America would embrace that or reject it. And so when I look at these periods, I always think of them in terms of Reconstruction, because what we see is an of the country try to empower black people or to like, you know, incorporate black people more into the society. And then the backlash is like white supremacy and the KKK and mm-hmm. right, this violence. And I think we see something similar the, in, in the civil rights movement, right? Brown versus the Board of Education, which means now we have to integrate. The, the, the response is very similar to the response that we see after the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so I think if we think symbolically instead of literally, History can teach us what's happening. Yes. Obama represents that black empowerment, right? The, the the election of President Obama represented what Reconstruction represented. It represented what Brown versus the Board of Education represented. And so we're seeing the same backlash. Mm-hmm. And why I think this era is so dangerous is because unlike Reconstruction and unlike the Civil Rights era, the changing demographics of America mm-hmm. and changing demographics of the world have the former former colonial empires and the white establishment in America fearful because for the first time numerically you could become the minority Mm. and that's why I think this this era is so dangerous because I do believe that there's sort of this idea that this is like the last stand and if we don't do this now It'll be too late in 10 years. And my fear is that, you know, we have a group of people in power who are literally willing to create an American apartheid system yes. where we will be ruled by a minority. So I think we can look at those eras as, as examples. But I do think what's unique about this era and why things are different is because we also know that the white population is declining and that creates fear. Um, in people who care about um, maintaining the um, the power of whiteness in America. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for unpacking that that history for us, uh, and that really helps uh, put all of this in in perspective and the historical context for us. So, thank you. Uh, lastly, what are some steps that parents, students, teachers, and concerned residents can take? to combat this dangerous campaign to ban or censor the teaching of race and a a true accurate uh, telling of our history in public education. Um, Why don't we come to you, Melissa, and then we'll, time permitting, get get the thoughts of Owen and Sarah as well. Yes, thank you. First and foremost, it's important to contact your state legislators and let them know that you are opposed to these bills and, and the impact that you think that these would have on your students' education. I would say the same in the State Board of Education. The State Board of Education has actually been dealing with this issue longer than the legislature has been, but from the opposite perspective, the State Board of Education has actually been trying to lift up equity and these kinds of conversations in the classroom and our state board members need support in doing that because there are about five people on that board who are in opposition to that. I would also say it's very, very important to be an engaged parent. We see a lot of enraged parents showing up at school board meetings, but I honestly believe that they are the minority and we cannot allow a vocal minority to limit what's happening in our classrooms. We need our engaged parents to be talking with teachers to understand what's actually going on in the classroom and to encourage and support your teachers in in teaching this honest education. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, why don't you go next and we'll leave, uh, give Owen the honor of of wrapping up this section of our our dialogue as we get ready to transition into Q&A from the audience. So, Sarah? Yeah, well, I want to echo Melissa. You know, I think most of the families that I talk to agree that these bills go far too broad. 
and that they're poorly written and they're just copycat bills from the South that we don't need in Ohio. You know, um, the problem is, is that most parents are overwhelmed right now with everything going on with the pandemic. And um, but I think it's important that they rise above the apathy and um, and send an email off to the governor, to their legislators and say, this bill is just too far and we don't need it. Um, and let's leave our public education in the good hands of the teachers who are going to teach our children well. And Owen, uh, what would you say to your peers, to your classmates, to get them uh, mobilized and uh, concerned about this issue? And what would you say to the decision makers, the legislators, and the school board representatives? I would first start by asking students to talk to their teachers about it, because their teachers know that these issues are occurring and they can help explain it to the students. And then another thing just about uh, communicating with people, I don't think a lot of students recognize the power their voice has. For example, you can go talk at your city council meetings, you can go talk to talk at board meetings and contact your uh, representatives. And I would implore students to do that um, and just get your voices known because the young people I feel like have a lot of power in, as to what is going to happen. And I think we should use that to our advantage. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you. Today at the City Club, you're listening to a virtual forum talking about race, equity, and inclusion in the classroom. We'll, in a few minutes, we'll turn to your questions. If you have questions for our panelists, text them to 330 541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet also, uh, tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work in your questions. So going, turning to our questions from the audience first, um, why do you think the fear of critical race theory and speaking about race equity and inclusion is so big? Um, John, why don't we come to you first with that question? Um, I think the obvious answer is just that it's misunderstood. I think um, several people spoke earlier about how you know when we you know spoke on Friday, often what we hear about critical race theory, isn't even something that applies to critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, but it's become this thing, you know, there's a real brilliance in how the conservative movement attacks um, whatever culture war they choose to fight, right? Um, because the boogeyman can be whatever you want it to be. So I think, like, you know, critical race theory and the opposition to it, I think is sort of a microcosm of what is happening in our society right now, which is why, you know, Sarah talks so much about the, the danger to the democracy It's misinformation. Mm -hmm. And so there's misinformation about the pandemic. And so we can't get out of the pandemic. There's misinformation about the election. So now our democracy is at stake, right? There's misinformation about critical race theory. And so now how we educate our kids and try to teach them to think and analyze and then you know, create their own worldview. All of this is under stake. So I feel like the biggest challenge about critical race theory and speaking about it, I think one is the misinformation, but also two, I think there's a real fear of then what then happens once we teach the truth. I mm. think there's a real concern over, do they want reparations? What do white people have to give up? I think there's like real um, concrete, concerns over well, what how does this actually affect my life and mm -hmm. so i think those two things are there's a misinformation but there's also this concern over okay so we acknowledge slavery we acknowledge the legacy of institutional racism and then like now what do we have to do and i think there's a fear that you know maybe i'll lose my status or maybe i'll have to give up some wealth or maybe i'll have to give up something so i think that's really at the core of the opposition is this kind of uncertainty 
as to like where the end game is. Like I said, it goes back to this idea of reconstruction and, you know, the birth of a nation, how Woodrow Wilson shows the birth of a nation. So it creates this fear of black domination, right? That is the theme that comes out of reconstruction that the white supremacists use to sort of get this buy-in, right? Like, do you want black domination? And I feel like that is still in the subconscious of a of a, a a large enough segment of white America that they they fear. Well, we've had this hegemonic power. Well, do black people want hegemonic power? And if they get it, are they going to oppress us? And I think that really is at the center of the um, the resistance as well. Okay, thank you, uh, Sarah. Why don't we come to you with this next question? Anti-equity folks claim that white students are being made to hate their country and feel guilt and shame when America's history is discussed. Is this true? No, you know, and I think this this goes back to um, what Dr. Adams was talking about in that, you know, when you hear Westlake white parents talking about these issues and they're against it or they're against critical race theory, um, you know, they're not saying to themselves, oh, I want to maintain white supremacy. What, what they're hearing in the sound bites from the conservative media is that, um, that our children are being shamed um, and being taught that, um, that, um, that um, identity politics. So like, they have these buzzwords as we've been sort of talking about before. And when you really sit down, and, and the problem is, is that we have the we don't have a shared history. I was taught in my mostly white suburban public education that um, racism died in the country with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Martin Luther King. He gave that speech, and then that was it. Race was over, um, and we were all you know doing fine. And you're laughing, but this was what I was taught. No. I wasn't taught about redlining. I wasn't taught about police reform problems. Right. And that's why this history is so important, because we're we're coming at these issues today with two different histories. It wasn't until I saw George Floyd's murder mm. and I started to do some learning about it that I learned about these policies. And that's why it's important that our children are taught these policies. Um, but they're not being taught in the way the conservative media is saying it. You know, when you actually go into the classrooms and talk to the history teachers, like I do, right? Like, I mean, I've got two white males that are being taught history now, but nobody is shaming them. They're they're doing it as these are the policies and here are the implications and let's analyze it. And what do we do about that now as a democracy, as a culture? Mm-hmm. They're beautiful conversations that come home. Their essays are amazing when you read them. And that's where I feel like we need to trust our teachers to handle these divisive concepts well, because they're doing it already. Yes, and I I was smiling with you in confirmation of your point, uh, Sarah, absolutely. I was reflecting on my own uh, primary school education and history courses. So yes, I I can, it resonated with me what you were saying, so. Uh, Melissa, if the bill pa- if the bills pass, how will you prepare teachers to teach differently? Well, that's pretty simple. We won't. <laughs> we will challenge the bills, and we will provide professional development for our educators on how to continue to teach these concepts that our students so critically need. And we will provide legal support to teachers who are challenged. For, for teaching the, 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 the an honest history in our classroom. And I, and I wanna point out that, you know, this isn't just about history class, okay? I mean, when we start talking about divisive concepts, I mean, who defines what a divisive concept is and who's, who's judging whether you've done that or not. So this goes to, I was a school librarian. This even goes to, could go to the, the books that a librarian chooses to have in, in her school library. So we will be prepared to support anybody who is challenged as a result of these laws. And we will continue to support our teachers in, in teaching an accurate history and doing everything that we can do to help our students understand these concepts and hopefully give them what they need to help make a change in the world. Okay. 
can anyone, can either of you speak to how these bills also go beyond the classroom, but apparently would prohibit all kinds of, of forms of diversity and equity training in public institutions, such as policing, health, human services, and local government, for example. So would anyone care to respond to that question? I am, I am not as deeply steeped in that, but I will say that, you know, House Bill 327 does pre prevent the teaching of any kind or any kind of trainings that um, would be considered divisive also. So again, who defines what divisive is? So mm -hmm. we know that there's a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion training happening across our public sectors, and those could all be challenged as a result of this bill, which again is a real detriment to our society. Yes, anyone else care to respond? Yes, Owen. I at least would like to talk about the diversity aspect of it because a couple of weeks ago, we found out that uh, the Rocky River City School District was going to uh, put on pause our contract with the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio, and that it would be handled internally. Um, of course, there has been no talk of anything ha being handled internally. And uh, to be uh, honest, I would be very concerned about Rocky River handling this uh, internally, just the, because of the culture of this city and how parents would react. It just, it's honestly another example of our administration uh, uh, folding to that outspoken minority. Yes, yes, yes. I I, I had forgotten about uh, that situation involving the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio, and I'd actually had a conversation with uh, Peggy's own Fisher, the director of the Diversity Center, regarding that matter. So thank you for for bringing that that into the discussion on. Uh, one of the proposed state bills that students should not, uh, says that students should not be made to feel guilty about historical national events involving race. Is there a way to explain to legislators and parents that a substantive discussion about race and its impact can be held without making students feel guilty? Uh, John, why don't we come to you on, on this question initially, and then uh, Sarah or Melissa, if you'd like to respond, or Owen as well. Oh, I'm not really, well, I think I'm coming from maybe not the most advantageous perspective for this question. <laughs> um, honestly, I'm not really sure if, Feeling guilty is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it matters if the conversation or the process stops at feeling something. Because when I, like, to me, guilt is like a feeling, right? Mm -hmm. It's an emotion. And so even though that's not the emotion that we want, what that means is that, is that a person has been impacted that they feel something. And I just think it's a part of a process. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you are, as an African-American and you grow up in America and you have to just suck some things up and let some things go and accept some things that you don't want to accept, you are growing up in a position where you don't get what you want. And you have to embrace that. And I think, you know, that that's not the case for all groups in America. And so I just think um, that guilt can be a part of the process. I mean, like, I'm a man who went to graduate school and I studied gender, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that process is me learning how men who look like me have historically participated in the oppression of women and the denial of opportunities for women. And so there was a point where I went through a process, right? There was a point where like, I felt as if like, you know, 
okay, don't speak first. Let the woman go first, right? Like all these things you begin to learn about what men do mm-hmm. that is like systemic. But then I got to a process where I, the next stage was like, I'm going to stand up for the women. But I'm like, that's still kind of like patriarchal, right? Like, why does a woman need a man to stand up for her? And then I got to a point where I was just like, or you could just like stand with the women, right? You could just like stand with them. They can speak up for themselves. You can back them up, right? When needed. So I just think that, you know, it's a process. And I think we have to be open to the end goals. And then there'll be a plethora of emotions that will come up in the process of trying to get to what the end goal is. So, you know, I, you know, that's my, my response is that I just think that, um, I don't think that feeling guilty is necessarily a bad thing, but I think that if you allow a student to stay there, then I don't think that's productive. Yes, yes. Would anyone else care to respond? Yes, first of all, I think that was such a wonderful example. Thank you for sharing that example. I would would add to that, for every student that might feel guilty, on the other side, we're also empowering some students who have never who have never felt connected to our curriculum because we haven't been talking about the history that represents them. So as he said, it's a process that people go through, but it's also a process of why some people are feeling guilty. Other people are finally feeling a connectedness to our history and finally feeling validated and have an opportunity to fully participate and engage and to help and, and to learn and to be able to, work with their counterparts on making solutions moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. Dr. And Dunn, if I could speak sure. to you as well. Absolutely. Because um, I get this question a lot. Um, and I, the way I reply is I said history should have emotion tied to it. You know, when, when a student is learning about the Holocaust, they should be horrified that that happened. Mm-hmm. But there were people that stood by it and allowed that to happen. When we learn about how we did Japanese internments here in the United States, they should feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that our history, right? That's why we teach history is so that we can look at the mistakes of our forefathers and learn from them and grow, right? And the teachers up at Westlake High School are doing a fabulous job of not saying you, you know, 17 year old kid who just happened to be here, you're the one that's responsible for all the mistakes before. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not doing it that way. That's not logical. Instead they're saying, yes, these were atrocities. And so how do we move on from there? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Owen, would you care to respond to that? I would, um, at least from my perspective as a student. Well, I'll start with saying our history department is phenomenal. Um, We have always talked about these issues and they are going to continue talking about them up until the bitter end. Um, But like everyone else was saying, making white students feel primarily feel guilty about our history is not a thing that is happening in our classrooms. We are talking about factual events that happened in the past, why they happened and how to take care of them now, like what you can do to fix these issues that are happening. Um, And thankfully in Rocky River, at least, we have teachers who do that, but uh, in other districts, unfortunately, um, there's not an outlet for those discussions at all. Sure, okay. And our next question uh, comes from a student that asks, I was wondering how do we as students uh, make sure we stay educated about things like critical race theory when our superiors are trying to keep these types of topics out of our classrooms. Uh, Who would like to weigh in on that question? I mean, as a student, I'd love to talk about this. Um, I guess the first thing you could do in your classroom is talk to your teachers about it. Ask questions if you're talking about current events at the beginning of the class period, just bring it up in conversation. And if the teacher actually says, oh, we're not going to talk about that, maybe ask them why they're not willing to talk about Mm -hmm. it and get that conversation going. You are allowed to say those things Mm -hmm. in your class classrooms. Very good, very Um, good. Yeah. Anyone else care to 
to chime in. If not, we can move to the, another question. What is the most concern teachers have? Is the students not willing to cooperate with the idea of learning about diversity? Uh, Melissa, why don't you start us off with that, that question or response? Well, there are multiple concerns. Uh, one is what kind of impact does this have on students if we don't have the discussions or if they're hearing from whatever sources they're hearing from that it is bad or wrong to be talking about these things. So how does that play out in the classroom? Two, uh, I think teachers are concerned about what could happen to them personally if they do teach this honest and accurate information in the classroom. Uh, are they going to be penalized in some way? Are they going to lose their license? Which, again, that's part of one of those bills is that they could potentially lose their teaching license. Is, is the school going to lose their funding because of something that they do? But three, and I think this is really the, the biggest concern, is where does it go next? Okay, again, what defines a divisive concept? When are you going to start telling me, and the legislature already is, about how do we treat transgender students? Uh, how we discuss other topics in the classroom? What books can I buy? What topics are on lim off limits? Uh, how, how far is the legislature going to go in impeding upon our professional judgment about what happens in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question asks, uh, social media and online forums like TikTok are dominating social lives of teenagers and often not sharing what they see with their parents. Can keeping conversations in the classroom help battle misinformation students may come across on social media? So why don't we go to Sarah and then we'll come to Owen on, on, for a response. Well, and that was, it was going to um, go when Owen was talking about it. I said, you know, mm -hmm. students are learning about all these topics on TikTok already, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want them to know about what's going on with race or gender or transgender, you know, um, you know, parents um, are, where our conversations are, you know, I've never even heard of non-binary, but my kid picked mm -hmm. it up on TikTok. What does that mean? Right. And so the, the, I cannot believe that our legislators think that by creating this bill and just saying, okay, don't talk about this, that our kids aren't going to be exposed rather than allowing the teachers to say, okay, well, where did you get that information from? What source material was it? How credible was that source material? And helping to teach them how to process the information they're getting on social media, right? That's what our 21st century classrooms need to be doing, not limiting and um, telling, you know, teachers so they're so terrified they can't even talk about it rather than helping the kids to process it. Yes. Owen, would you care to, to comment on this question? And then we'll come to Dr. Adams as well. Yes, I would. <laughs> um, so I think, yes, that, these, that there should be these conversations in classrooms about social media because that's honestly just the one common language between all of the young people in schools um and just if you hear something that like some viral video on TikTok, and then you talk about it in class if your teacher knows the issue they can share if it's actually true or not and i apologize to any parents listening for what i'm about to say but i think you as well should be involved on these social media platforms mm -hmm. and see what is being discussed and so if your child comes home with a question you can be prepared to answer it. Uh, I'll use another Rocky River example. Uh, a lot of our parents don't talk about these uh, issues at all. And we have a culture of honestly just intolerance of other viewpoints that some of the students have. So I feel like if the parents are educated about it and everyone's educated about it, we can have really beneficial conversations. Okay. Okay, and Dr. Adams, would you care to respond to this question? Yeah, I think, you know, my question is, is misinformation the goal, right? I think we talk about it, but is this actually the goal, right? There are real benefits for the people who are promoting the mistruths 
if misinformation makes it through, right? So when you validate all information, that that's like one of the things I've noticed over the past like five years or so, is that we're treating all information as if it is the same. So, you know, I think, you know, the result is that um, the truth has no weight in the world and society that we're living in right now. And that's really dangerous because it only benefits the side that is not um, embracing the truth. Facts. Um, and our opinions are being treated as if they're equal. But facts, I can't, I can't tell you how many times that you will have a conversation with someone. And Sarah, I know everyone on this panel has had this happen to them. And you've given out facts. You're like, okay, I'm listening. Like, you're like, okay, I don't want to come off as like, I'm just pushing my beliefs. So I'm really going to listen. I'm really going to like, specifically, like if you said this in my response, I'm going to say that I'm going to repeat back. It's like what we teach students, right? Repeat it back. So we know that you are the person who understands you, right? I'm like practicing all this. And then the response is always, I mean, I understand that. And you make some good points, but I just think, I just believe my opinion is, and I'm like, that's perfectly fine if that's your opinion. Mm-hmm. But what are the facts that back up your opinion, right? And so I think we're living in this world where opinions are treated like facts. And so, you know, people who don't believe that there's a history of systemic racism in America, they believe that just because they don't believe it, then it's fine, right? And I think it goes back to like one of the first articles I always assign to my students in my world history, my African history class is an article called Who Decides What is History? And it's by Neil Urban Painter, who's a retired emeritus, she's emeritus professor at Princeton University. And the whole premise behind the argument is like what we're talking about. Parents get mad at school boards. They go to school board meetings. The school boards are then gonna decide what textbooks they want based off the politics and based off the parents. And so like, we have to realize that if we choose, right? Like I think that as a history teacher, we, we focus so much on the importance of English and math and science, right? And not to say that those aren't important subjects, but if we misteach our history, this is what is allowed to happen. This is the real danger to society. Mm-hmm. None of this would be happening if we actually taught history properly over the past whatever decades. And so I just think we have to remember that Mm -hmm. if we misremember the past, we are misunderstanding our present and then we are going to plan poorly for our future. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are invested in the status quo and, and, and are invested in power dynamics as they have existed historically and presently in this country, I think that, you know, that is a, a real danger because people are living. I always tell my students, the past is not about the past. It's about the present. How we see history in the present, tell how we see the past is really informing us about where we are in the present. And this and this really, really dangerous right now because we seem to want to harken back to a white supremacist, misogynistic, you know, past where women can't even get abortions and black people can't vote. What is going on in America right now? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all. Uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time and thank you all for this very enlightening and engaging uh, dialogue. I'm sure we could go on for hours on end on this topic, but uh, thank you. That brings us to the end of our time. Thank you so much, Ronnie. Uh, This was a great conversation. And uh, thank you for joining us for today's virtual forum, talking about race, equity, and inclusion in the classroom, featuring John Adams, Department Chair for History, Cleveland School of Science and Medicine at John Hay High School. We also have Melissa Cropper, President of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, Owen Gaynor, student at Rocky River High School, and Sarah Rintamaki, parent at Westlake City Schools. Today's forum was moderated by Dr. Ronnie A. Dunn, Interim Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Professor at Cleveland State University. This forum is part of our Education Innovation Series sponsored by PNC and Nordson. We're grateful for their support. Our community partners are Policy Matters Ohio, Common Cause Ohio, 
Honest for Ohio, Honesty for Ohio's Education and the NAACP Cleveland Branch. Our community media partner today is the Northeast Ohio Solutions Journalism Collaborative. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or texting the word DONATE to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And follow a few easy steps to make your donation. Be sure to join us this Friday, September 17th. We'll be speaking with Michael Deemer, president and CEO of the Downtown Cleveland Alliance. He will be in conversation with City Club CEO Dan Malthrop about how downtown Cleveland has fared over the last year and the priorities that will move our, city's, uh, our city center forward in this new era of leadership. Tickets are still available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about our other forums at cityclub.org. Thanks for joining us today. Please remember to vote. It is primary election day. And I'm Cynthia Connolly, and our forum is now adjourned.